and welcome to From the Recreate, a podcast about Watford FC, brought to you by The Athletic. My name is John. With me today is Mike. Hello, John. Hello, world. Well, a few of the world. I don't think the whole world's listening to us. Uh, and the, the Athletic's Watford correspondent, Adam Leventhal. Gentlemen, hello. How are you? Good. All happy, I hope. Uh, today we're going to be discussing success, failure and the future of Watford FC, uh, all based on Adam's recent essays, as I like to call them, Adam. I think I say the word article, <laughs> the word article far too much. Um, an essay that uh, Adam does on theathletic.com. Um, what is that website? Do you, have you ever been there? Well, if you haven't, go and give it a try. Uh, there is engrossing storytelling, analysis and exclusives. And at the moment, for 90 days, you can get it absolutely free. So that if you want to have a try of that, because you're stuck at home and need a little bit of extra football in your life, go to theathletic.com forward slash rookery end. Now, I always like to, I don't know what, what you call it. I've heard a rude word sandwich when you say you do something good, something bad, and then something good at the end. I don't know what the word is. I, I can't say it is um, the one I know it, but I'm sure there's, um, it's a way of coaching people. But anyway, the, let, let, let's start with the success <laughs> let's say. Uh, Adam has written an article about the Watford player of the season. But Mike, we haven't completed the season. I'm sure you're aware of that. Uh, haven't, we haven't completed it yet. But in your eyes, which of the players who have donned a Watford shirt this season would be in the reckoning for Watford's player of the season? This is difficult for a number of reasons. One of them you've just touched on, and obviously we haven't finished the season, so there is scope for someone to uh, to make a late bid for for glory and to, to claim the crown but the other reason it's difficult is that and we might have forgotten this we've had a bit of time away from football and it looks like we'll continue to do so for a little while but Watford have had a really very very bad season haven't we <laughs> 90 29 games won six drawn nine lost 14 win percentage of 20.7 percent it's not really very good is it and there's been a couple of a couple of high spots um but really it's yeah, just sort of doing a bit of prep for for today's podcast. It did remind me we are in the midst of a, of a pretty grim season for for Watford. So it's slim pickings in terms of who could potentially um, lay claim. One one person I did think that was worth mention, not necessarily in the frame for player of the season, but I did think the emergence of uh, Adam Messina has been a massive positive. I think he's done really really well um, for Watford, and it was interesting watching him come on. We we rewatched, didn't we, the uh, the FA Cup semi final uh, against Wolves, the BBC showed that after after they won the poll and he came on didn't he late um and it was almost like that was his his birth wasn't it the end of last season uh, and he's kicked on this season he's done done really well watching Holobas perform so well in that game and then to think this year we haven't really missed Jose Holobas because Messina has been so good so I think he's worthy uh he's worthy of a mention maybe maybe most improved player of the season well yeah, I don't think he even improved. I just think he's come on. I think he did look good in, in parts last year, but he looks at a more all-round, uh, complete Premier League footballer. So excited to see more from, from Messina. And another, the other person who's more firmly in the frame, I think, is um, someone that has been in the conversation. I think there's been some stats knocking around this week on, on social media via various sources. And I was rightly pulled up for being frustrated with him over the, probably the past couple of seasons. And that's, uh, that's Etienne Capu. I think he really has... You know, for this season and probably for for a lot of last season, I've said repeatedly that he's potentially one of the best Premier, one of the best midfielders in the Premier League on his on his day. I genuinely think he is he is that good. I think he is on a different level to to most players. Certainly, we've seen at, at Vicarage Road. Mike, I did find that tweet. Uh, it's from Mike Smart, <laughs> and Mike said, "Remember when Etienne Capoue was a source of frustration? At Rookery Mike voiced our frustrations on a weekly basis, as I recall, and not the imperious god he has become. And you know about improvement. You talk Etienne." 
over the last two years really has, really has, really has, really has improved. I think he just seems happy. I think he just seems happy in his own skin. I think he seems happy in his, um, in his. Le- he's sort of every. He's a he's a look to player, isn't he? He's a senior professional at Watford, and before you might have perhaps questioned whether that was a role he relished, but I think now, I think he really does. He he knows that he's an important player for Watford, and he seems to to really bask in it. And I think he's been been absolutely terrific. Potentially, we only see glimpses of of how good on occasion, um, but absolutely superb. And I think we're so lucky to have Etienne. Kapu as a as, as a Watford player, but I think there's one standout candidate for for player of the season, um, and it is ultimately who who Adam who Adam went with. Um, and again, it's someone that surprise surprise I was a little bit critical of earlier in the season. No one gets away with uh, with it with me, unfortunately. But Ben Foster earlier on in the season, we I think a few questions were asked certainly amongst fellow fans, and we raised those on a, on early episodes of the of the podcast. We did question whether whether Ben Foster was perhaps his his powers were waning, but with hindsight, I think that was just linked to a poor performing Watford side. There was lots of frustration, particularly at the start of the season. There was goals flying in left, right, and centre. Uh, and Ben Foster was was picking the ball out of the net more often than uh, than you'd like. So I think initially we had we had questions, but crikey, how wrong was I to do that? It, I think over the course of the season, if it wasn't for Ben Foster, Watford would have been relegated uh, at Christmas. I think he's he's been superb, uh, and for me at this stage, he's an absolute shoe in for for Player of the Season. We'll get to Adam why he picked Ben in a, in a minute, Adam. But like yeah, the, the, some fans Adam might say. Feu for the flair that he's showing and how much he came on, uh, especially under Nigel Pearson. You, you could argue a little bit that the same could be said about Decore, but they, they didn't necessarily have what you would call a, a complete season, as Mike Tree said, that there wasn't really a complete season from anybody uh, across the board in, in, in Watford world. Um, but why was it? What particularly made Ben for you? the next little bit above everybody else for you to name him? It's important to sort of in these sort of situations to try and explain that the parameters that you were working to, because I decided that the player had to be one that has been present for the majority of the season. And Ben Foster has been exactly that. And there hasn't been that many other players that have been constant um, through the season. Etienne Capu, as we've you know heard very eloquently from Mike, he could quite easily have been, the player of the year he has um you know he's been there all the way through some of his performances of late i just remember you know some of the lone pressing forays that he would yeah. go on late on in games especially against um bournemouth i think then against liverpool as well we saw it he his energy and his his engine that he possesses you don't necessarily always associate that with him because he's got that language style. But the way that he was able to lead by example on the pitch, especially in second halves of the better half of this season, has been, you know, has really sort of set him apart. But the, the reason that I went with Ben Foster is yes, he's been key on the field um, and there have been, you know, significant saves even before. Um, Nigel Pearson arrived I watched back one of the games as you do you you know we're at home now and you'll see games pop up on on Sky or whatever and there was the game that we played against Chelsea we lost of course but some of the saves that he made in that game that could have quite easily been a Man City defeat at home against um, against Chelsea there was that one save from Pulisic where he just flicked that header 
it was a fantastic save, backpedaling and then just flipped it round the post. And you just thought, even at times when we weren't doing well, and okay, there were blips and he had that sort of fumble against with Kiko Femenia, so to speak, in the box. <laughs> and, you know, there was also conceding eight goals against Manchester City, but I think anyone who would have been in goal would have would have done the same. Um, but even in games where we were losing, he was able to keep the scores down. And if it comes down to it and we get playing again this season, it may well come down to goal difference. And even in the times when we weren't scoring goals at the other end, he will have played a part as well because he was making great saves. And then subsequently in the good run, when Nigel Pearson took over, some of the saves that he made at key times of games, you'll remember that home game against Aston Villa and Wesley, just before he got injured, I think he got injured in the next game for, for Aston Villa, he was coming into his own and he was bullying Cabaselli and he was having the better of Cabaselli yeah. and he had that header, which was tipped almost sort of Gordon Banks style, down from the header and up and over and wide. And that was at nil-nil. He also made great saves against Wolves. There's a back-to-back wins. We know he made that astonishing save against Sheffield United as well. And they're just sort of three examples. There'll be other ones, There's, you know, against Manchester United, uh, one-on-one against uh, Lucas Moore in the Tottenham game, which we managed to sort of sneak uh, a point in. So he's been fantastic on the field. But then, as you well know, we also know him and love him because of what he does off the field as well, which has been exceptional and, you know, has, has set him aside and he's shown not only sort of great performances on the field, leadership on the field, but he's done that off the field as well. And and he's shown that he's he's actually a kind person, which I think when we're reflecting in these sort of situations and um, we're maybe a little bit more philosophical about life, you think, what sets someone aside? What makes them a bit special? And I think we've seen, you know, his positivity and the fact that he has that ability to be warm and caring when we're all maybe at times feeling a little bit down, um, you think, oh yeah, no, he actually makes me he makes me feel good with the things that he he does, and we've seen that with you know um, some of the things that he's done in and around the club. So that was the sort of the cherry on Ben Foster's cake, which helped really. So I remember the the, the video that was there. He did several that were on the, the club's YouTube channel about the the young girl. Um, mm. Firstly, you know, going to see her at Christmas, but then just sort of how he he dealt with her um, yeah. at the game. Um, it was, was the Liverpool game, yeah. Um, at the Liverpool, yeah, game. the Liverpool game, yeah. yeah. And you know, there's, there's a little bit of that, but I think when we do the podcast, sometimes we're outside the ground, and you can see the players come out, and you just see how they interact with people. And he just yeah. does really, really simple things. You know, he he will stop for everybody. He knows how he needs to stand. He'll get down on the kids' level, and he'll yeah. and he, he talks to them. He doesn't like say, so what's been going on with you then? He just says, how are you? And they go, oh man, uh, yes, I'm great. Thanks, Ben. You know, and it's just, he interacts them so amazing. But my favourite thing of him recently has been, um, there's another video I've seen, and of course it was on uh, Football Focus, him, him leading the way with a mm. Zoom cycling um, with, uh, with all the other players. And just that sort of mentality, Mike, where he's, he is another captain almost. 
Yeah, you can see in those videos the the respect he has and the way he is able to be. He sort of he beasts them. I think is the uh, mm. is the is the correct phrase, isn't it? You wouldn't catch me on yeah. a spin bike, so I don't know if I'm <laughs> using the right terminology. Although Ben Foster told me to get on one, I probably would. But you can just see the the camaraderie that he inspires, and they obviously look to him and they do what he says. Which for a bunch of um, elite athletes like that to, to sort of fall in behind a a member of their peer group is is quite interesting to watch, and it's just it's just obvious that he's entertaining he's funny and he and he has the respect of his his fellow players which i think goes back to what we talked about him being on the on the, on the pitch i think his performances when things aren't going well perhaps even more so for a goalkeeper it might be easy to hide behind the fact that things aren't going well adam listed a litany of amazing performances there and john i think you've hit the nail on the head by just saying he gets it he just is an inherently nice person and i don't think you can teach that you can't train yourself to be like that you can train yourself to be better at it and adam in your article there's the list that, that there's a number of things that, that he's done uh, over the course of his watford career you know the, 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 the uh, molly with with luke kimi he's just lovely with that the guy who he who he bumped into who'd had a, who was trying to walk home uh, yeah. you can read more about that in the piece in the spin classes it all comes together to make a really impressive package and one other thing that that i liked about ben foster was that he i can't remember where the actual interview was but he was very very frank and honest probably about a third of the way into the season as to why he thought things were going badly uh, and he didn't pull any punches he wasn't apportioning blame necessarily but he was being pretty blunt in his assessment of of what was happening and why it was happening and and why it shouldn't be happening and what what needed to happen but from him and his fellow players and and perhaps the club itself so He's just an all-round good egg, not afraid to speak his mind, um, but he backs it up with obviously being well-liked and respected by his peers, performances on the pitch, and just being an absolutely superb um, ambassador for the for the club. So all-round, he just, he's just a great great guy to have around, isn't he? The communication, I think, is, is really important as well. He is someone that, as you've you know said there, he will do lots of interviews and will say it as it is, but he stops and talks and mm. some of the other players and this isn't this isn't a criticism in particular of of any other players but but if you if you put the two sort of front runners for um the player of the season uh, alongside each other Ben Foster will invariably stop and talk and be honest and frank and open Etienne Capou on the other hand he's not really one to stop he doesn't really sort of feel that necessarily it's his place uh, to do that explaining for for whatever reason and that's just sort of also you know part of part of my experience of, of dealing with the two people so you sort of maybe sort of side with one rather than rather than the other and that's not disputing the qualities as footballers of both of them or as human beings because we also see Etienne Capoue for example he stopped outside the ground with my son and had a, and had a photo so he's not he's not like he's a bad guy it's just that sometimes in these circumstances when we've had as you started off with Mike a pretty terrible season <laughs> someone who's been able and willing to stop and talk about it and get it out in the open deal with it is Ben Foster, and I think that that's that's a very sort of laudable trait. It goes a long way with supporters as well. I think supporters yeah. need to hear that that the the players get it, um, and I think some of them just aren't. I don't mean I don't mean inarticulate as in stupid. I just think that a lot of them don't feel comfortable in in talking, and they're worried they might get misquoted. And I, so I yeah. do understand. 
um, a lot of them not necessarily wanting to to talk. And it goes back to, I think it's just inherent with Ben Foster. He's he's had such a a long and illustrious career. He's experienced ups, downs, international football, um, you know, relegation. He's spoken to good journalists. He's spoken to bad journalists. He's also spoken to you, Adam. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, So... He's just. I think he's just com- com- confident and comfortable, and we've got him just at the just at just at the right time, haven't we? It's it's. It, and you mentioned also mentioned in your article, Adam, which is something that I hadn't really picked up on him in terms of his contract, um, and I think he, his must be pretty pretty high on there to to get uh, renewed or or looked at. You'd have, you'd have hoped and thought. Basically, it appears that there is something on the table, but at the moment we don't really mm. know that table. If you see what I mean, you know, it's it's on the yeah. table, but the table's moving around because we don't know when when football's coming back. And I think for a, for a goalkeeper of his quality and also the age uh, that he's at, I think he would probably be very, very keen to stay at Watford and continue in the number one position. Um, he's only, you know, his, his contract runs out this summer. Um, but you know, if Watford were to, you know, resume the season and then be relegated, I think he's probably unlikely to want to go and play championship football. Mm. So he may think, well, I could go and be a, a number two, like we saw with, you know, like Rob Green, for example, pitching up at Chelsea when he was, you know, in the in the latter days of his his career. So uh, it'll be it's it's one of the sort of key subplots when we have an idea of of when football is going to resume, whether whether they nail down that contract. It just it just really is is up in the air at the moment. But if it was up in the air then we would have every hope that Ben Foster would come and claim it what I also love about it is the fact that the, the award now isn't actually just called the Watford player of the year it's the Graham Taylor Watford player of the season uh, and hmm. you know, those values that you've sort of picked out on Ben um, are what he's done on the pitch um, and, they, and they are the things he's done off the pitch but again it, it, there's lots of things going on at Watford at the moment uh, even though there isn't any football there's still plenty going on at the Vicarage Road Stadium it's being used for many NHS workers who are just next door in Watford General Adam wrote a piece on The Athletic a few weeks ago uh, all about what's been going on uh, but I got to speak to the club liaison officer Mr Dave Messenger uh, about what's been going on and uh, developing uh, at the club and how they're supporting Watford General Hospital <laughs> So Dave, we've we've seen pictures today on social media of uh, the minute silence for all those NHS staff that have lost their lives due to the COVID nineteen outbreak. But uh, Vicarage Road is an absolute hive of activity uh, in many ways, uh, supporting Watford General Hospital. How, in which ways, are, are the club supporting the the hospital themselves? The sort of support we're giving, just to give sort of people a bit of a background on how it all started. So some might, some might even be aware that. The hospital and the trust actually use the meeting rooms and the, the, the lounges in the Graham Taylor stand as meeting rooms quite often across the course of normal time. So the whole conversation started from us going to them and saying, look, if you need to use these spaces during this period, we'll, we're happy to give them to you free of charge and all the rest of it. And from there, it, it sort of grew from that point. So the, the, the hospital trust, the NHS trust were very keen to sort of meet with us and talk about how else we might be able to help. So many different sort of facets to it. The club's kit and laundry team has cleaned over 10,000 sets of scrubs now using the club's wow. facilities at the stadium. The media facilities at the stadium have been converted into a call centre. That's being staffed and operated by the NHS, and that gives them somewhere to, to enable them to stay in contact with the hospital without having to sort of keep going backwards and forwards. And it also gives them a space to make outgoing calls to check on the welfare of their staff. So if they've got staff that are self-isolating or they're just 
you know just checking on their well-being in general they've they've got that space to use as a as a call center as well the, the levels of support are you know the, the different areas and the different things we've been involved in there's there's so much of it going on really because it's also the the sensory room is being used is it for for babies yeah so the the maternity unit the way that one came around so again fans will be familiar with that corner of the stadium where we've got the two levels the sensory room and the sky lounge above it again the hospital asking if there was um, some support we could give to the maternity department so what they found was the expectant mothers that had outpatient appointments weren't attending and they were cancelling their appointments because obviously the the proximity to to potentially uh, to catch in uh, COVID-19 so what we did there the Sky Lounge is being used as a space for those mothers to have those uh, to attend as outpatients essentially and um, that's there seven days a week they're using that Um, and then the sensory room is being used as a space for the newborn babies to undergo uh, the all-important health checks giving them an extra space and an extra environment and minimizing the amount of times that expectant mothers and mothers with newborn babies are, are actually staying in the hospital premises so somewhere else for them to somewhere else for them to be it's really good like the, the fact that the stadium is all the different bits of the stadium are sort of in isolation aren't they and they're all being used in, yeah. for, for different reasons but the, the really warming i suppose stuff for us as Watford fans and, and warming maybe is the wrong word to use but it, it's seeing the almost the, the relief and i think the word sanctuaries you know being has mm. come up for the, the for the members of staff the key workers who are working long hours in very weird and, and stressful situations but they've got a place to go now um in in vicarage road yeah absolutely and that, i mean that's that's been the, that's sort of the most publicized area i think that the, the things that we've done with the hospitality lounges so um the gallery which is one of the one of the lounges on a match day has been rebranded as a sanctuary and that's open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So NHS staff can come and go as they please. We had more than 250 staff came to that within the first 24 hours of opening. And at that point, it was all just word of mouth. They hadn't even put a message around the staff to say this was available. So for those first two few days, we just got got ourselves up to speed and got ourselves up and running without publicising it to the, to the NHS staff within the hospital. So even just by word of mouth, we had more than 250 staff coming across that first sort of weekend. And then that's grown from there. We started serving the... Uh, breakfast and lunch in the Horizons restaurant that started uh, uh, last week and we're, we're averaging around about a thousand hot meals a day across wow. those two settings to, to NHS staff and also the executive boxes in, in a stadium and con- converted into counselling rooms and bedrooms for use by the NHS staff so that's not just for uh, covering for night shifts we had a, a, a doctor came over to the stadium on Sunday who's observing Ramadan and just wanted to have a couple of hours sleep during the day because he's feeling tired. So again, we were able to do that and also providing those those rooms for the evenings as well. Having a, a place to come and sleep is amazing. And um, one of the boxes has also been turned into a memorial room for the staff to have some some private space to remember their colleagues who've lost their lives. All of that happening within the, within the Graham Taylor stand. And it's just having those places, you know, one question that a supporter asked me actually on the phone earlier on today was, you know, surely they've got these facilities within the hospital already and yeah they, they, you know they probably have but the fact of the matter is this is somewhere for them to to come away from it mm. so that might you you use the word sanctuary the, the word sanctuary has really been carefully chosen for the room because it is somewhere for them to come to to come away from the hospital area to come away from their working environment and just to relax and and in what must be a you know a hugely demanding 
place for them to be at the moment. So providing that space and then doing the things that we're doing in, within the spaces, we're just so so pleased to be able to help and so pleased to be able to offer that. And for us as a club, it speaks to, we, we talk about it often, about trying to uh, maintain the, the ethos that some of us at work there grew up with as <laughs> supporters, but trying to maintain that ethos and trying to always be that, that family community club. This speaks to that so, so much and it's... It's just been a it's just been an, an uplifting thing to be involved in. Is there anything particularly fans you know who maybe aren't part of that? They might be Watford fans. Who, I'm sure there are Watford fans who work in the hospital now. But is there anything else other fans can do to to help the club? Therefore, helping the NHS. We've got the Hornets at Home scheme that we started up right at the very outset of the coronavirus outbreak. So I think pretty much on the Monday morning after the uh, the Leicester game had been postponed, we. We sat and thought about what we might be able to do and put the Hornets at home scheme in place. And that's very much still up and running. And we're still very happy to hear from supporters that want to volunteer and that side of things. So, yes, there's a little bit of coming and helping us out with um, in the Horizons restaurant, especially. We're, we're having around about eight to ten volunteers in there every day to help just clear down the... Uh, clear down the tables after the breakfast sitting and ready for the lunch sitting and keeping it keeping it, it ticking over during the during those two sittings so that's happening and then also from the Hornets at Home scheme if there's fans that want to get involved in helping supporters in their local community as well so we're very keen to help elderly and isolated or vulnerable supporters to you know food deliveries or medicine deliveries or those things that we're that we're able to do within the lockdown restrictions that we're all living under we're still more than happy to hear from people that, that, that would like to volunteer for that. And they can they can do that by getting in touch with me at the club or by emailing ticket.office at watfordfc.com. The ticket office team obviously not having uh, a great amount to do at the moment because matches aren't taking place. So they're managing some of that volunteer, voluntary aspect of both of those schemes. And they'd be more than happy to, to hear from any supporters that haven't got involved yet that would like to going forward. The word Watfordy Dave comes up quite a lot when that comes to you know losing a game at the last minute or <laughs> or doing have a terrible start to the season or, or whatever. But this is completely and utterly the, probably the most Watfordy thing we can do uh, as as a club, uh, and it, it's fantastic. So so thank you uh, to the club and uh, and really hope that uh, other fans can can help. Yeah, we do. I mean, as I say, we, the, the more people that want to get in touch, the, the the better as far as we're concerned. And if there's anybody that wants to to donate donate anything if anyone's listening here and feels like they'd like to donate something that we can that we can use in the sanctuary for for you know be it biscuits or drinks or anything like that again just get in touch with us at the club and we can arrange for you to come down and drop it off and and we can make sure the nhs staff get it and more importantly know where it's come from as well a podcast made by watford fans fans for watford fans from the rookery end after some successes and some very positives let's go to mike's happy place Failure. <laughs> Negativity. Now, Adam had a piece about Nathan Ellington. Now, Mike, you know, how do you think he is viewed by Watford supporters? Well, undeniably, and you say, you say you know, I'm the harbinger of doom. I do quite like to always look for the positive in things, but it's very, very difficult. It's just a very to... long road to get there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've no idea where it is, how to get there or how to talk like it. But, with, but you know, with with with, um, with Nathan Ellington, there's no, no dressing up. He will be viewed uh, as Watford fans, as a Watford player, as a catastrophic failure. He was expensive. Um, he was brought in on a you know at a time when money was was tight. He was brought in on for a big fee, um, and he didn't do well 
in the slightest. It, gravely, gravely disappointing. Um, he'd obviously done well. His best days were with uh, was it Jason? It was Jason Roberts, wasn't it? They, yeah. He was he was Wigan, pretty yeah. lethal. Um, so he had scored goals, and uh, we'd had sort of similar success with with Marlon King and and Darius Henderson, who who Boyd Boothroyd had re- reinvigorated those guys. Marlon King in in particular. So I think there was there's something in football fans that get excited when their club spends money, isn't there? And that, I think that's still true to this day, even though you looked at the, the fee we paid back then, 3.25 million. Back then, that was a lot of money. And by default, almost, the reaction amongst Watford supporters is to, is to get excited. If you've spent loads of money, that's going to mean something good and exciting is going to happen. And it just didn't pan out at all. I mean, yeah, I think I used the word catastrophic, and I think that's probably... Um, I think that sums it up ideally. It's, there's no other way of looking at it, is it? There's no redeeming features, really, certainly from a footballing point of view um, in his, his Watford career. It was it's a bad one. It was a bad one. We did a podcast with uh, A.D. Boothroyd. I uh, went up to St George's Park to interview him. Um, must have come out about a year and a half ago now. And, and he did talk about you know, the fact that Marlon was someone who wasn't at the, the height of his career and, and he helped sort of reinvigorate him. I think he definitely saw and wanted to reinvigorate Nathan Ellington, you know, to get him back to somewhere where he was when he played for Wigan mm. and Bristol Rovers. It didn't happen at, at West Brom. It didn't happen at Watford. You know, we, we talk about him and I think most Watford fans would put him in that category, Adam, of, of failure. Does he see himself as a failure? Does it does it sit bad with him, his time at Watford? He describes it as the worst time as a player at any club. So um, he's not sort of sugarcoating it in any way. Um, and the stats, as you know, highlighted at the top of the piece, are very, very, very clear. He spent 1,393 days as a Watford player between August 2007 and June 2011 scored five times in 56 appearances, having cost £3.25 million. You know, he knows, we know that it was a failure. But the the aim of a piece like this is to, now that there has been, you know, a bit of distance, almost, you know, 10 years since he left and now he's retired, is to actually look back and work out why it didn't go to plan. And at the top of his list rather than it being necessarily something to do with with him, which is maybe sort of a, a natural defence mechanism. I don't think he's sort of saying there was nothing that he did wrong, but at the top of his list and that the biggest factor he felt in it being a failure was the style of football. You mentioned there A.D. Boothroyd. You know, I've spoken to, to A.D. in the past and I think he was very clear in, in his um, philosophy at that time that it was direct Nathan Ellington had come to the team when they were trying to get back up and get back up quickly because they'd obviously spent some of that Premier League money on on Nathan Ellington. But his piece of the jigsaw didn't really fit in because he was used to playing, as he describes it, more intricate football um, at West Brom. And he was basically being bypassed. Um, And it was... You know, a situation for him as well, whereby he'd been at West Bromwich Albion. He was behind the likes of Jeff Horsfield and Kevin Campbell. He then came to Watford thinking he was going to start, but he was then behind Darius Henderson and Marlon King. So if you've not necessarily been playing um, full throttle football for a season and you come in, you start off on the bench, you're not quite as sharp. Things didn't go to plan for him straight away. He missed a couple of early chances. He didn't score for about six months I think it was Um, 
and that pressure sort of mounted and I think he's very understanding of the fact that yeah when you're brought into a football club and you cost a lot of money there are great expectations from you from from the fans but also when he was talking about his teammates he was you know in his initial games going just play the ball to me come on play the ball through the lines I'll get it we'll turn I'll play it off I'll make a run in behind jobs are good and but then he was being told by some of his his um, his teammates, no, 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 Nathan, we don't do that here. We just get it forward, get it in the mixer. And I think that when you actually, you know, the scales fall from your eyes and you go, hang on a minute, I was I was made this great promise by A.D. Boothroyd that I was going to be reinvented. I'll do with you that I, you know, I'll do with you what I did with with Marlon King. And then you're actually looking at the style of football and going, well, this isn't what I signed up for. It must be very, very disheartening to actually go, well, I'm going to really struggle to score goals here and it's going to be all on me and I'm going to get the blame, even though maybe the style of football didn't suit him or a lot of the players around him. Maybe, But, you know, maybe they were more adaptable and he needed to be more adaptable, perhaps. I don't know. I love the uh, love the bit in your the little nugget in your piece, Adam, about the third top scorer in that 2007-2008 season. <laughs> Was yeah. uh, was Mr. Danny Shitu, yeah. Um, which kind of just dis- and you know when you're when you're a Watford fan, we've had certainly when you're a Watford fan of, of our age, you you spent pretty much your entire life defending Watford against um, uh, against accusations of being just long ball a long ball side or a, or a very very direct side, and you know you've just in this lockdown watching some of those games from the eighties and the fact that Watford were labelled a long ball side at that time was is ludicrous. Some of the the football Watford played there was was brilliant, but anyway. Mm. Looking back at that season under A.D. Boothroyd, you have those seasons. And you have to admit that we were were very very direct. And you and you reference Lee Bromby brought, being brought in effectively because he had a long long throw that he could. Uh, we, it was just another way of getting the ball down the pitch quicker. And the fact, the very fact that Danny Shitu, a hulking great centre back, was our was our third top scorer, just shows really, doesn't it, that there is some um, merit in in what Ellington says in terms of the style of play but by the same token it just strikes me about him and and I think you mentioned it as well I think the Tommy Smith's quoted as well in the in the piece perhaps saying that whilst he didn't he, he had a bit of a raw deal in terms of the style of play Watford were were playing was he a hundred percent at it was he a hundred percent at his best was he a hundred percent focused on it I don't know there's still just something nagging at me that's not quite right and that might be the the younger Watford fan in me just being disappointed that it didn't pan out and being annoyed that he wasn't scoring goals after we shelled out all that money the point that you're making is is in these sort of articles sometimes when someone doesn't basically go you know what yeah I wasn't really up for it I, you know the money had gone to my head you have to sort of piece together the evidence and you have to it's like it's like being on what's that show with through the keyhole you know with uh, Lloyd Grossman you have to sort of well, let's have a look at the evidence I, I, I wanted in this sort of piece where I, I knew that I couldn't just say right this is Nathan Ellington's version take it this is what it is I wanted to ensure that we had different voices in there that could balance it out a bit. And a lot of them, to a man, they all say that he was a lovely guy. And you're right to pull out that quote from from Tommy Smith that he basically said, yeah, I, I don't think it was all down to mm. the style of football. But then having spoken to him, he was also in a situation where he probably was thinking at that time, oh, you know what? I've made some I've already made some bad decisions because he was absolutely flying, as you said earlier on, alongside Jason Roberts. Yeah. And if he had stayed with Wigan, 
when they got promoted, he left that summer and went to West Bromwich Albion. He would have been playing in the Premier League alongside his great mate, Jason Roberts, but he left because there was some wranglings over a contract. Um, And he ended up going to West Brom and getting relegated whilst Wigan stayed up. So you're already sort of thinking, oh, damn, that that didn't go to plan. And then you move to, to Watford, who had wanted him when when Watford went up. So he could have been on an on a sort of a, an upward feeling or at an upward feeling football club, but yeah. he left it for a, you know a year. So there's a lot of things going through your mind. And then I suppose that that sort of starts to sort of nag, nag, at, nag at you a little bit and just think, oh, I'm making some bad choices here. But then he does also talk about some of the other elements that were raised at the time. And, you know, I, I spoke to him about his his Muslim faith. And he said, well, look, that that had absolutely nothing to do with it because there was the accusation that, um, you know, we're in we're in the, the period of Ramadan at the moment. And he was, you know, there was accusations that he couldn't play because he was fasting and, you know, he wasn't strong enough or or this, that, or whatever, but he refutes them, uh, refutes that altogether. So, you know, I, I I made sure that everything was was put to him, and you know, it, it might not please everyone with the answers that he gives out. But the one thing that I can't criticize him for was that he was giving his honest response, and um, you know, and that's that's all you can ask for someone. But he, you know, he does he does basically say, you know, now I'm working with younger players. I want to make sure that they don't make the mistakes that I did. So he knows that there have been some mistakes made along the way. Another bit in his defence, and I think it's probably timely to to look back on that period as Watford as a, a club as well. I think the way he was sort of treated towards the end, I mean, obviously his, oh, yeah. his Watford career yeah. was dead, but he was effectively shunted out to footballing outposts, really, wasn't he, on loan? Yeah. Because the, the, the deal was structured... That, that Watford had to pay another million quid if he paid um, a certain amount of games. And I think it does... People complain sometimes about the way Watford's run now and transfer policies and who's not coming in and who's not. But the fact that we almost ended up paying four and a half million pounds for, for Nathan Ellington does show... It's a it's a scary glimpse into into how the club was potentially run at that time. The decisions like that were were able to be to be made and that a player's career was effectively like I say it was done and dusted anyway but there might have been a little bit more wiggle room for for sorting out something better for him had uh, had Watford not sort of structured a, a pretty bad deal by by the looks of things and I just think it's it's interesting you sort of stop and think well um and I know we're going to talk about uh, uh, the Watford setup as it is now but that deci- that that sort of decision would no way be made now and it's uh, I think it's just interesting to contrast now with then and and just to just to realise that it does actually have an impact on the on these players if if clubs make bad decisions you mentioned Nathan Ellington make bad decisions Watford made one as well and it and it probably cost him a couple of years of his career yeah and it, you know you mentioned it at the beginning the fact that at that time the finances weren't weren't as good as they should have been for a team that was heading out of the of the Premier League and I think that they probably gambled on obviously the player and the fee, but they also gambled on their belief that A.D. Boothroyd was still uh, the man to get the best out of the yeah. players. And, I mean, let's not forget, they did get to the playoffs, so they didn't do all that bad. So he limped to those No, players. no, no, I, I, completely, I completely agree. But it was, you know, sometimes when you think about teams now that drop out of the Premier League, number one that you'll hear from the chief executive or the chairman or the captain or whatever is, 
we just need to get back there as quickly mm. as possible. Um, you know, like if I don't know if people have been watching the the um, Sunderland documentary on on Netflix. Oh yes, oh, that's oh. you know that's that oh. season when they're in League One. Stuart Donald has taken over. It's very very you know, Stark, right, we have to get promoted. And I think that that was the situation with with this one. It was like, right, A.D. Boothroy had to be pragmatic, right, let's play the most effective football. Okay, we've got Nathan Lennington in the team, but yeah, he should be popping up with more goals. Let's get it in the mixer, let's score goals. We've got people that can do it. We're bigger, we're stronger, we've just come out of the Premier League, we're a little bit harder than than the teams around us. Um, And that was the plan, but overall the gamble didn't didn't pay off. But it is interesting when you look at how contracts are structured. And this was very much a, you know, one that was associated with add-ons. But it just seemed that the benchmarks that they'd set within that contract was was heavily weighted towards appearances rather than performances. Performance, and yeah. you know, you know. And it was nowadays, I think it is it is far more performance related rather than appearance led um so you have to sort of meet your targets i think you know if you look at danny welbeck's contract that he's come in with it seems to be you know now the environment that we're in that players you know have to meet goals targets and they you know they have to be achieving more statistically driven goals and i suppose in those days it was a little bit more like right if you play 30 games bosh we're gonna have to owe you another 500 grand or whatever it was so i think things have changed now and i think things will change even more after the situation that we're in currently that players won't be able to be demanding as much money because there's not going to be that much money in the game it's fascinating it really is fascinating looking back it does feel like a a bygone era already and just as we were talking john hearing you say we limped to those playoffs which of course we did the second half of that season was absolutely poisonous it was it was not enjoyable mm. at all to be to be in the ground and and adam talking about gambling there with with ad boothroyd and we we write that season off you know ellington is the poster boy for that for that disastrous season really mm. and we write it off but actually that first playoff game against hull we were very very unlucky not to win it there was a few dodgy uh, refereeing decisions didn't go our way and um, the second leg at hull was actually quite an entertaining affair despite us uh, never really being in touch so we probably were never that far away from from getting to another playoff final and perhaps bouncing back first time despite in our minds if we think about that season completely writing it off as a as a nightmare we were probably you know not that far away from making it despite it all and it's just I think it's interesting now we've got a bit of time to, to take stock and look back using articles and pieces like this one, Adam, as a as a lens really to to, to reevaluate what time was like there. I found it absolutely um absolutely fascinating. So we've had success, we've had failure. But what about the future? You're listening to From the Rookery End. Adam, the, uh, you also had to pick not only your player of the season, you had to pick your young player of the season. And I want to congratulate you on making a very easy decision. Because uh, it would have been for any <laughs> Watford fan. Because we haven't particularly played a lot of young players, as, as we had to uh, you know, in, in the past. But you picked, of course... Uh, no surprise, anyone. Don't don't faint. Uh, Ishmael Azar uh, as the young player of the year for Watford, and but he was he wasn't part of the conversation. This is what annoys me, maybe as a Watford fan, of the Premier League 
young player of the season. I know they all have to be under the age of 24 at the beginning of this season. But you know, in, in the mix there, you've got players who played over 100, if not more, first team senior games, their clubs. Indeedy at Leicester, Agrilis at Villa, Adama Traore, and Trent Alexander-Arnold. He's won a European Cup. You know, maybe Daniel James who's had a, you know, a year, his first year at Manchester United. Because I always think these awards should be like the old smash hits poll winners party. There's always the breakthrough artist of the season. And there are many, Adam, outside of Ishmael Azar, who had an absolute breakthrough year and, and added so much to their club. Well, yeah, and he, he was the, the reason that we looked forward going to watch Watford before you know the, the season ended prematurely wasn't he he was the, he was the one that we thought right well he is going to give us a chance of getting out of the mess that we've created and and I think it was just very satisfying having sort of done a lot of work into the the qualities and done a lot of writing into you know his his backstory even before he'd arrived at the football club um that he came through that difficult start because you know he was he was obviously um affected by Javi Gracia coming in and perhaps going well I didn't necessarily you know, order one of these players to, to come in, um, but it's arrived at my door and now I'm sort of having to um, deal with it. There was obviously that sort of famous game at, at Newcastle where he kept both his new signings on the bench. And I think that was probably the beginning of the end for, for Graffia. And then the same for Kike Sanchez Flores. He was sort of taking his time with him because he had an injury as well. So until Nigel Pearson came in, we didn't really have a, a head coach that had explicitly been told just bloody well play him put him in the side and get him in there and you know we've we bought him for 30 million pounds plus you know as we've been talking about Nathan Ellington he's probably going to cost us a lot more in the future um but he'd already shown in sort of flashes that he had the potential to 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 make a real difference and that's what he did once he was filled with confidence and the the first game I think it was at Anfield that Nigel Pearson was was in the dugout he was basically saying look give him the ball get the ball to him he's he is an asset and I think that confidence even though that there was sort of a, a little bit of miscommunication there we saw that at, at Bournemouth when he came off and he had a you know had a little bit of a hump even though he'd he played brilliantly he just needed to know that everyone was supporting him having had two head coaches before who just seemed a little bit confused as to how to use him but then when he got going he was he was absolutely fantastic and obviously it culminated in that game against against Liverpool where that was almost his his breakthrough game for not not just the Premier League the Watford fans already knew about him but I think for 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 the world as well watching that game and probably expecting Liverpool you know all around the world Liverpool fans would be going all oh, right it's Watford away bingo we'll win 1-0 I know we've been struggling a little bit but at least we'll win 1-0 but to get creamed 3-0 and for Ismail Assar to, to dominate Liverpool like he did, I think that was a, a real wake-up call for, for world football, really, to see someone who had been talked about in footballing circles, you know, scouting circles, having done well in France, made a big move to the Premier League, and then to do it against the best team in the world was, you know, a realisation, obviously, for a lot of people that, yeah, this, this kid has got it, definitely. It's not very romantic, but one of the my initial feelings about Saar when he did click was 
was that a relief, really? Gino and, and Watford had made such a big play for him, spent a lot of money, yeah. had to had to do battle with with Wren, who didn't want to get done like they did for they they see thought they might have been a diddle for for Decore. So they'd really gone into bat for this guy, and then to see him uh, just not make an impact at all, I was thinking they're just going to get they're going to get slaughtered for this. They spent thirty million quid. Uh, he's, he was the big hope for us over the summer. We're going to potentially get relegated. Then it looks like we've wasted thirty million quid on this guy. So for him to come good. It, it just felt like um, vindication of uh, of Gino and the, of the scouting network, really. So I was I was thrilled that it came good initially for that. Like I say, not very romantic, but a more pragmatic approach, really. But the the fact that he he comes, Adam, from this Pozzo global uh, footballing network to find these these rough diamonds or these little nuggets of gold uh, from across the world, and and a piece you wrote was was fascinating. It's something that I haven't really you know, read a lot into was all about this, this POTSO network and, and how it works. How, where did you start you know, working on, on this? How do, you, how do you find a way into the inner workings of the POTSO machine? It was always something that I wanted to do when I started at The Athletic. You know, it was, it was something that I put on a list of, right, I want to try and deliver as good a piece as I can on this topic, but I knew that it was going to take time. So it's, it's sort of been uh, over the, well, however long since the start of the the season so what nine nine months uh, sort of working on it and picking up little bits of information here and there um and just trying to piece together as as many pieces of that network as i could um and it's it's obviously very complex when you get below the people that we all know about you know obviously we know about filippo giraldi technical director at watford uh, andrea carnavale has the the same position or similar position at udinese and then you start to look at the the levels below them and people that then have teams of scouts that then they control and that feed back into them and then it goes up to the the top level with giraldi and carnavale and then they obviously feed into Gino Pozzo, who is the man at the end of the day who does make the final call on players. And, and what was really interesting for me was, you know, finding out who covers uh, football in Germany, who covers football in South America or who covers football in, in Asia or, or wherever. They would always speak about the fact that Gino Pozzo knew what was going on, often sometimes before they could finish feeding back the information to him or even if he just needed to take a couple of moments just to sort of do his due diligence and say well yeah you know I, I I now know about this player or yeah I had a sense about this player or sometimes the recommendations might even just come um, directly from him but it is a you know it's a it's a structure that as Watford fans you know when the Pozzos took over in 2012 people were going oh yeah but they've got a great scouting network I don't think we'd ever really had anyone that had tried to sort of put it together. I'm not blowing smoke up my own backside. It's just that it's such a complex thing that I know full well that there will be pieces of the jigsaw that I haven't been able to pinpoint. But if you read through it, you will learn sort of about a, a few sort of key people in that puzzle um, that are very influential and also people that have previously worked for the Potsos that have now stepped away or that are working in recruitment roles for other football clubs, but that still 
um, speak about that network as almost like a, a, mar- a market leader. And, you know, a lot of football clubs that are bigger and better than us will have looked at the work that, that Watford have done and, and obviously previously and still interconnected Udinese have done and go, we need to be more like them. So I spoke to someone that works in a recruitment team at another Premier League team and they were very much like, well, look, they've got a body of work. They've got um, examples at their different clubs over the years where they can say to a prospective player that's coming from Brazil or coming from elsewhere that, look, we made this player from a you know a five or ten million pound player into a forty million pound player like Richarlison or or many many others that came through Udinese in the past. So that's why people trust them to deliver. There are going to be mistakes, like with any football club, and you know we've had a few wrongans pitch up at, at Watford, but you know on the whole they've got a very sort of clear defined method of trying to unearth a gem, polish them up and sell them on for a big profit. And and Watford will continue to benefit from that policy. The quote I really liked, Adam, was uh, the resale of a player is the consequence of a of a job well done. And yeah. there's yeah. lots to enjoy about that that quote because it's not quite... It, by calling it a, a consequence, it isn't saying that's the end target, but it's also implying that that's what it is and that's how Watford and, and Udinese need to need to run. And I think, it's again, it's, it's, it's a good opportunity to take stock. Filippo Giraldi was mentioned there and he comes in for criticism whenever a player doesn't really perform and I think that potentially is because he's very very visible and he he makes a show of that he is visible at matches he's he's here there and everywhere that's obviously the the way he is which is which is up to him but you know your piece does just show how widespread and how many moving parts there are to this system and 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 you also mentioned just then that we've had a few wrong ones of course we have but if you look at the the big hits that we've had and you don't really need that many big hits for it to be worthwhile do you, you know you mentioned Richarlison almost offhand you know plucked from absolutely nowhere and could potentially be one of the best players in the world in a couple of years time you know regardless of the way he left and and the whole silver issue that guy is an incredible, incredible player. And for Watford to have gone in from nowhere, the same goes for, for Ismail Lassar, really. No one else was... We had to be, we paid top dollar for him. That could have been because of our previous relationship with, with that particular chairman. But no one else was, was after him, really, were they? And he's not going to be a £30 million player for, for much longer if he carries on playing like this. João Pedro, who is yet to, to make a name for himself in the Watford squad, all of a sudden he signs for Watford and Liverpool want him. Um, Barcelona want him. Madrid want him. Uh, you know, Luis Suarez is coming up again in the press as people wanting wanting him so these are heavy heavy hitters that that Watford uh, but more specifically Gino Pozzo and his team are basically pinching from under the noses of the biggest clubs in the entire world and they're doing it uh, pretty pretty consistently um, and it doesn't take much for the for, for it to make it all worthwhile and I think you only need you know maybe three four five six seven of them over the course of their ownership of the club and the whole the legacy could potentially be be cemented for for a very very long time so I think it's important to look at the big picture when we when we we sort of try and understand what, exactly what they're achieving to continually get these guys ahead of people who have got va- much, much vaster resources in terms of money and manpower than, than Watford is, is quite, quite extraordinary. Adam, we know there's lots of these, you know, another article you wrote a while ago about Luis Suarez. There's lots of these players that Watford own, but they've never 
been to, be, they have been to Watford, I suppose, but they've never actually played and, and, and what have you uh, within the Vicarage Road uh, Stadium. How are they treated differently? Do you think are they, uh, you know, are they, are they definitely part of the network and the the development? I think that they they all um, know that they are part of the the Pozzo family, and I know that, that sort of might sound a bit strange because you know footballers, you know, traditionally will go, well, I play for X or I play for Y or whatever, um, and I think that sometimes when these players are initially sort of sourced, they go, right, well, I'm going into this relationship with with the Pozzo family. And, and it may well mean that, yeah, I'm going to initially go to Udinese or previously I'm initially going to go to Granada and then I'm going to be moved around. But what I do know is that there will be a plan which ultimately, and, you know, Mike picked out that quote there, which is, you know, really pertinent from, from Gino Pozzo, um, that the plan will ultimately benefit both them, but also me, so that the money will follow. Um, and I think that the situation that Watford are in now, it's it's strange, really. And, and it's obviously, you know, we can't um, complain about the situation that we're in because there are far more bigger things uh, at play with the, with the current crisis. But it's a situation now where Watford, I think, if things had gone to plan this season will have been ready to accelerate having had a bit of a sort of stagnant season last season in terms of bringing in new um, uncut diamonds into the squad that they were willing to sort of accelerate that and they have great plans to do that. So the likes of Cucho Hernandez, you mentioned Luis Suarez at, at Real Saragossa, they, they, you know, both on loan there. Uh, Pervis Estupinian, who's been exceeding expectations playing for Osasuna um, in La Liga and has been one of the best left-backs um, in the division. I think, you know, there are grand plans to go, right, well, we can bring these players in now but just as long as we are in the Premier League. So like we were talking about Ben Foster earlier on, until we know where we're going to be and there is clarity, then we don't know what this sort of the next gems that the Pozzos will hope to obviously unearth and, and polish up and sell on um, will be able to come to the football club. But we know that, you know, João Pedro is here already and I think they've been quite, quite good with him. I think they've actually thought... You know, maybe we've we've bought him or we've got hold of him. We've snaffled him up maybe a, sort of a couple of years before he's ready to actually play in the Premier League. But they've sort of tried to harden him up playing lots of under 23 football. And hopefully after a pre-season, he'll be able to offer more in the first team uh, next campaign. So we just have to wait and see. But I think that, you know, we're still in a good place in terms of recruitment. And just, you know, one word on Filippo Giraldi. You're right, Mike, he does get a bad press because he is he is public. But what I've learned from this this piece is that a lot of them, a lot of the, you know, the, the people that have worked in and out of the system say he is all in. He's, you know, it's not like he's trying to sort of grab attention. It might be a bit misplaced when he's on the pitch and hugging people and not really sort of realising that there are a lot of people watching him. But he 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 lives and breathes it. He wants it to work. There can't be any disputing that he's in it for any other reason apart from wanting it to work. So I think that that was quite a nice reminder from hearing it from a lot of different people within this piece that, you know, he's one of the, the, the pieces of the jigsaw that is is very committed to his, his job and to the task that he's been given by the man above him, Gino Pozzo. 
And there's me thinking there wasn't much football to talk about, and we've been going on for a while. <laughs> Fantastic stuff. Can, no. you, can you tell I haven't been speaking to a lot of people? I'm <laughs> gabbling away. I do apologise. Gabbling, no. gabbling, gabbling. I mean, there's so much. There is so much going. There's so much to football. Maybe that's what we can learn from this podcast and, and everything that Adam's been writing about on the Athletic. Remember, if you want to uh, to have a try, if you haven't before, all you need to do is to go to theathletic.com/forward/slash/rookeryend, uh, where you can get a 90-day free trial to really see what they're doing. You know what they've done since August. Uh, on the on the Premier League and what they're doing at the moment with it being on complete shutdown uh, for well for a little bit longer we may uh, we uh, we'll we'll have to see exactly how long that is so thank you very much Michael no problem at all that was good fun enjoyed it yeah and thank you Adam thank you very much gents cheers remember everyone please stay safe uh, stay at home and uh, we hope to see you soon at Vicarage Road come on you all.